0: All right, guys, good evening. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 3? So tonight we're kind of entering into the end of the first major section of the book of Romans. As we have said before, this first section we've called condemnation. Runs from chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20. We call it condemnation because uh, in it, Paul is presenting his argument that the whole world apart from Jesus Christ is lost in sin, separated from God, and condemned to hell. It's kind of his closing arguments in his case for the guilt of all human beings in the presence of holy God. And we, as we have said, with the precision of a brilliant prosecuting attorney, Paul could have been whatever he wanted to be. He chose to be a theologian, but he could have done anything. He was just one of those guys that... Uh, was a genius, and whatever he put his mind to, he would have excelled in. But with the precision of a brilliant prosecuting attorney, Paul sets out to systematically prove his case that the whole human race is condemned apart from Christ by first addressing the unrighteous heathen, next the self-righteous hypocrite, and number three, the ultra-religious Hebrew. And in making his case, he proves that the heathen is condemned by creation, the hypocrite by conscience, and the Hebrew by commandment yeah they have the commandments of god but they're not following them okay his conclusion is that everyone from the reprobate to the religionist and everyone in between are all guilty apart from jesus christ and his payment for their sins on calvary's cross and now paul calls the final witness if you will for the prosecution to the stand guess what it's god himself god himself you don't want God testifying against you. You're, you're, you're a loser, okay? Um, unless his son is your lawyer. First John 2.1, he's our advocate. If, you've, if you're saved, you got an advocate, a lawyer, whose father is the, the judge. That's a good place to be in. But now Paul calls his final witness uh, for the prosecution of the stand against the human race. That's God himself. And In verses 10 to 18, guys, What we see here is it amounts to a 14-count indictment of the human race by God right out of his word, right out of his word. Now, it's important to understand that this is God's view of man, God's view of man. And if anyone is harboring under any, I don't know, illusions or delusions about man's innate goodness, well, they better listen carefully to what God has to say about us and not listen to one another Because people will praise themselves. You know, mankind loves to pat himself on the back and tell himself how wonderful he is. But what does God have to say about us? That's the key. All right. Now, before we look at verses 10 to 18, let's look at verse 9 again quickly. Where Paul says, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. You know, Paul has just gotten uh, through proving that there are definite advantages to being Jewish, all right, to being a Jew. He does that in the first eight verses of chapter 3. But he quickly adds that these blessings and benefits, <laughs> they don't mean that we Jews are better than the Greeks, better than the Gentiles. It certainly doesn't mean because we're children of Abraham and the men have been circumcised and we're God's covenant people that we are exempt from judgment. Doesn't mean that we're not sinners and so on. And so he says in verse 9, for we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles, that they are all, listen, under sin. Now that's going to be important when we come into chapter 6. But let's, he's laying it out. He's building a case, really. Uh, You know, if you've really studied Romans, hopefully you're really taking this study in because we're taking our time building a case, building this book. Uh, looking at how it's coming together and so on. All are under sin. The word under is the Greek word kupa. And it means to be under the power, the dominion, and the control of sin. Singular in the Greek, we said last time, that means he's not talking about sins, plural, actions. He's talking about the sin nature that each of us inherited from Adam. Okay? All of us are under the sin nature. That was a question I had here in my notes. People might be thinking, well, who is under the power and dominion and control of sin? The sin nature. All of us. All of us without exception. In fact, 1 John 5:19, John says, We know that we are of God, and the whole world, apart from God, apart from Jesus Christ, lies under the sway or the control of the wicked one. This is Satan's world. Now, ultimately, God's over everything. But he honored Adam and Eve's decision to turn the world over to the devil. God gave gave it to them to uh, manage, okay? Uh, They were stewards of planet Earth. And they had one prohibition, not to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We know the story, Genesis chapter 3. But they did. And when they disobeyed God and obeyed the devil... What they didn't realize, I don't think, was in that one move of disobedience against God in obedience towards the devil. uh, They gave control of the world over to Satan, who became the world's new owner and man's new master. He is the God of this world. That's why it's manifestly wrong for people to look at this world and blame God for being an evil God, because if he was a good God, this world wouldn't be in the condition it's in. This is not the world God originally created us to live in. Well, what happened? We blew it. I'm getting ahead of myself. Just hold on to that, okay? But the whole world is under the control of the devil. All of us are under, before we got saved, we're under the control of our sin nature. Chapter 6 is going to tell you how to walk in the victory that Christ has given you. All right. We don't have to be under the control of of our fallen nature anymore now does that mean every christian is automatically victorious more than a conqueror they could be but they're not uh, because they're not letting the spirit of god really have control where the flesh is no longer the issue it's still there and it's going to be there our fallen nature until we get raptured and get our new bodies It will jettison the old nature never have to worry about it ever again but until that day, we don't have to be under the control of our fallen nature any longer. It doesn't have to dominate us, okay? We'll get to that. It's hard for a lot of people to come to terms with this truth, that they're not good. They're under the control of an evil force that is controlling them, pushing buttons, dominating their lives. Not me. I, I, I'm religious. Great. Wonderful. Religious folks tend to think that they're exempt. They want to say, well, yeah, maybe everybody else, but not me. Because I'm better than most people. In that, I go to church, I pray, I read the Bible, I light candles. Didn't you see me at the food pantry on Thanksgiving morning? I was there. Certainly I got a few points from God for being there that day. That's the mind of religion. The Pharisees were the classic example of this kind of thinking. The Pharisees thought they were so righteous, so good, so morally superior to everybody else. Why? Because they observed the law down to the minutest detail. They even tithed out of their herb gardens, you know. And because of it, they thought they were righteous, everybody else were sinners. Not them. They weren't sinners. Remember how they dealt with that blind man in John 9 that Jesus healed of his blindness? And they brought him in to interrogate the man because they didn't want to give Jesus any credit. He was—he can't be from God. He's breaking the Sabbath, you know. And this guy said, "Well, I don't know. I, all I know is once I was blind, now I see." I mean, if he's a sinner, what's God doing, working good miracles through sinners? I mean, you guys have taught us that. You know, they oh they were just beside themselves. They said in verse thirty-four, "You were completely born in sins, and you're teaching us get out of here." They threw him out of the synagogue. That, but that's where they were coming from—very self-righteous. But the Pharisees guys weren't the only ones who had a high opinion of their own moral superiority and goodness as compared to others. Look, most of the human race is guilty of this thinking as well. 1 John 1.8 If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, implying there are those who believe that they don't have any sin. They've washed their sins away by going to church or by other acts of piety, or maybe they don't even believe in sin. Of course, I think most people wouldn't claim that they never sinned, but they still would quickly add that, well, I'm not perfect, but I'm not so bad. Sure, I know I sin once in a while, but um, I'm still basically a good person. And guys, this whole section is based on Paul's assertion from Scripture. Because who cares what I think? or what you guys think, we need a higher authority than opinion. We need absolute truth, absolute authority. That's what the Bible is. This whole section is based on Paul's assertion from Scripture that there are no good, moral, or righteous people in the world apart from Jesus Christ. He says it in verses 10 and 12 here. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who does good, no, not any. And guys, this statement, as we talked about last week, this statement runs contrary to what most people think about themselves, that they're basically good people. And the Bible acknowledges this is where most people are coming from. Proverbs 20, verse 6 says, Most men will proclaim each his own goodness. That's just a common thing. Scripture acknowledges that. Most people in the world think they're good people. They're good people. Now, we touched on this last week, but we ran out of time. So please indulge me just for a couple minutes. I want to go back. We talked about how back in 1981, Rabbi Harold Kushner wrote a book entitled "When Bad Things Happen to Good People," and I want to make a couple more comments before I move on because it fits into the whole context of where we are in Romans 3. All right. But uh, as I said last week, his book struck a chord uh, with the public because it just it shot up to the top of the New York Times bestseller list. Uh, seemingly overnight, was there for over a year, and since then it's sold over 4 million copies, so a huge runaway bestseller. And What that tells us is that apparently a lot of people wrestle with this problem because they basically feel they're good people. And since bad stuff is happening to them, and I'm a good person, it's God's fault. What's he doing to me? God's the bad guy. And that's why the book was so insanely uh, popular, Because it resonated with so many people who think they're good people. And when bad things happen to them, and life is full of bad stuff, good heavens, forget any self-examination. Am I wrong here? Did I do something? Lord, is my heart right? Or whatever. No, I'm good. God's the problem. He's the villain. And this forces people, I think, to conclude that one of two things. Either there is no God. You know, if God's so good, And if he's real, there wouldn't be all this evil in the world. So there is no God. Or there is a God, but, you know, he isn't a good and loving God after all because if he was good and loving and powerful, he would never allow this world to be in the mess it's in. Well, as we pointed out last time, there's a third possibility, which is the one the Bible sets forth, that a good, loving, all-powerful God created a good world for mankind to live in a world free of sin suffering corruption evil and death so what happened well he created a good world after every day of creation he said it's good he created a good world for us to live in and then gave mankind adam and eve at that time a good thing called free will because he didn't want robots he could have made robots but that's you can't get meaningful love from robots If you program them to tell you they love you, you know, God could have pushed a button, I love you, I love you. I mean, how meaningful is that, right? So um, he gave man a good thing called free will. But it was man who exercised his free will in rebellion against his creator. And when that happened in the Garden of Eden, at that moment the fall occurred, and sin entered the world through the sin of Adam and Eve, which was then passed to all their children down through the centuries, up to and including the present day. The result was, guys, the corruption of God's good creation. The corruption of God's good creation. Now, some ask, did God create evil? Because there's evil in the world. Did God create evil? And a lot of times antagonists will try to get you over this. Did God make everything? Well, yeah, sure. Did he make evil? No, no, no. Evil's not a thing. It's the lack of a thing. It's the corruption of a thing. As we said last week, it's like rust to a car or rot to a tree. These things become corrupted by their environment. God's good creation was was corrupted by the environment of sin and rebellion, fostered first of all by Adam and Eve, and then perpetuated down through the centuries by their children. Guys, evil is a corruption of what was created good. God didn't create evil. Evil came about through man's sin. However, God isn't opposed to using evil and its ensuing consequences to bring about his ultimate purposes, the redemption of fallen sinners and his kingdom someday. Look, God created man with a free will. Because he wanted mankind to love him and obey him and serve him of a, with a willing heart. God wanted them to have a choice, which means they had to have a free will. And man exercised his free will in rebellion against God. Look at the world we, we have today. This is all the result of Ben's rebellion. What is God doing? You didn't want me to rule? You didn't want me to rule over your life? You thought you could do a better job than me? Well, go ha- have at it. And what this is doing is it's beating the rebellion out of many people. Not everybody. There are some people who are going to be rebellious right to the, their death. But sometimes God has, allowed, has to allow things to get so bad, we are open to saying, God, please, I, I can't live like this anymore. Lord, please, take over. Be my master. Be my king. I can't do this. My life's a mess. I have messed everything up can I just say something that might be a little shocking that's a better place to be in than a person who's very moral maybe very intelligent every thing they put their hands to they prosper they got the Midas touch the business prospers they they live in luxury think about this if God would have made our human bodies without ever being able to feel pain how many people would die with a serious disease that they never knew about because there was nothing warning them. Is pain pleasant? Of course not. Is it necessary? You bet. I mean, if I didn't have a pain in my chest 23 years ago, I wouldn't have gone to the emergency room to find out I was having a heart attack. If there was no pain, I would have gone on, you know, and probably died. No, pain is not fun, but it's necessary to bring us to a place where we realize something is wrong and we seek help. Jesus is the great physician. Well, why is God making my life so hard? Well, first of all, I'm not so convinced it's all God. Okay, I mean, you know, what are you doing? You want to blame God? But let me just put it this way. Why is your life so hard? Why is there so much pain? Let me me ask you, what would you rather have? a life free of pain and heartache and and adversity, just a wonderful life that you just enjoy every moment of this life and die and go to hell forever, where you experience genuine, everlasting pain, separate from God? Or would you rather God bring some pain into your life now so that you examine your life? Where's your life going? What's it all about? Are you on the right track? Uh. I don't think so. My life's pretty messed up. Praise God. You're in a better place than that person who knows no pain, who only knows blessing. God is trying to reach you through your pain. Don't waste the pain. Let it draw you to God. Get on your knees and you repent of your sins and receive Christ as your Savior. I'm not saying that's going to be the end of all pain. I'd rather have pain in the will of God than have pain outside the will of God. All right? So God's not against... This is the world we chose. A world of sin, a world of pain. And God's not opposed, There's not above using it to bring us to him of our own free will. Again, he's going to force us to be his slaves. He wanted people who wanted to love him and obey him freely. Which means if you think you can do better than me, go ahead. Live your life. Hopefully you'll be broken at one point. You'll come to me and say, God, please, I can't do this. And that's the moment God says, exactly what I've been waiting for. Come to me. Come to me. I want you to be my child. I, I want you to live in the Father's house forever. But you had to want that. And I wasn't going to force it on you. You had to come to a place where it's like, I'm ready. I can't live my life. I can't govern my life. I'm making a mess out of it. So the bottom line, guys, is God doesn't promote evil. He permits evil. He permits what is bad to bring about what is good, the ultimate good of defeating evil and redeeming fallen sinners who come to him by faith and eventually bringing a new world when Jesus returns. That's what we're waiting for. Look, if this world was all there is, this life, then I'd have to agree with Rabbi Kushner that God is too weak to change it. But the Bible tells us that this life is nothing more than a prelude to eternity, a preparation for what is to come. Turn with me in your Bibles quickly to Second Corinthians chapter 4. Well, you all know it's 2 Corinthians 4, starting with verse 17. Read verses 17 and 18. Here is the outlook you have to have as a believer, in these last days. Because I don't think these are going to get better. They're going to get worse until Christ comes to establish His kingdom. Okay? Here's the mindset you have to have. If you and I are going to survive what's coming, we have to have this mindset every single day, every moment of every day. For our light affliction, is, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, this present temporal world, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. That's why the Bible says, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Because this earth is rapidly, this life is rapidly passing away. And so while we're on this earth, God is building us. He's, He's working in us because he wants to use us he wants to use us to touch others he wants also that we have an abundant entry into the kingdom of heaven job said when he has tested me i shall come forth as gold that's what it's all about the refining fires of trials purifies us and makes our faith more precious than gold which is tried by fire you see the real flaw in Rabbi Kushner's book and we didn't have time to get to this last week so I'm going to throw it out the real flaw in Rabbi Kushner's book when bad things happen to good people is that it's based on a faulty premise and a faulty premise is always going to lead to a a wrong conclusion the faulty premise is that you ready for it? that there are good people in the world for bad things to happen to that's the problem that's what he got wrong this is exactly opposite of what the scriptures teach. What we are in right now, Romans 3, verses 10 through 18. If you don't know that, it's not that God is being bad to good people. It's that God is being good to bad people. because He, should wipe, he could wipe us all out and be completely justified in a, in a nanosecond. The fact that he allows us to continue the world in general, He could wipe out everyone in a second and be completely justified. But the reason he doesn't do that is because he's a good God who loves sinners, wants to see people saved. Peter said it, right? He said, you know, God's not slack concerning his promise about coming judgment. So what's taking so long? He's long-suffering, kind, patient, not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. That's our God. Look, let me just say this, and we'll move on. If your theology, which is your understanding of God, is built on a faulty anthropology or understanding of man, you are bound to come away with a distorted, twisted view of God. Because if you make your anthropology such where man is good, then God has to be bad. Because there's a lot of bad things happening to people. Good people. It's God's fault. If your theology is correct and your anthropology is right on, you're going to understand what's going on. You're going to understand what's going on. And so, guys, that brings us to the climax of this section. Again, this first section, condemnation, chapter 1, verse 18 to chapter 3, verse 20, where Paul looks to the Word of God as the final and greatest testimony against mankind. And as I said a moment ago, it's a 14-count indictment which begins with the words, As it is written which tells us he's going to be drawing from God's word, the ultimate witness against fallen mankind. Let's read verses 10 to 18. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. Uh, the poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, this is the most, I think, thorough and complete presentation on the depravity depravity of man you'll find anywhere in the Bible. Of course, it it immediately begs the question, how can God love me if I'm this bad? Well, first of all, the passage isn't accusing every member of the human race of having committed all of these sins. It's teaching that the roots of all of these sins lie within each one of us, in our fallen nature. In some people, they lie dormant most of their life. There are decent people out there who are unbelievers. In others, it erupts. These things are come to full bloom and bear a lot of evil fruit in some people's lives. I mean, look at what King David was capable of. And he was called a man after God's own heart. He committed adultery, had Uriah murdered. I mean, if he was able to do these things, I mean, where does that leave the rest of us? Don't ever come to a place where you think you've grown beyond sin. If you do, God may just remind you how much of a sinner you still are. Don't ever take for granted because you haven't sinned in a while or you've uh, you've uh, gotten victory over this sin or that sin that's no longer a problem. You face every day by drawing close to God every single day, drawing from His strength because if you don't, the sin nature will roar back into operation and dominate you again and you can't even believe some of the stories I have heard, I have seen over the years, where people walk with God, and all of a sudden, what happened? You know, when I first got saved, it was uh, Maranatha Music, the Jesus Revolution, uh, all these beautiful choruses that were coming out, replacing old hymns, which were wonderful, but make a new song to the Lord, right? A couple of these singers that appeared, uh, that sung on many of these albums. Two of them that come to mind, I'm not going to tell you their names. I think they've come back to the Lord. But oh my goodness, that they walk away from the Lord for a while. One guy tried to kill his own daughter. You think because you're in a, a place where you're just filled with the Spirit, you love Jesus so much, you're all you're doing is singing praises to God. You think that that means that sin is no longer an issue? No. Be careful. Be careful. The devil will let you think that to your guard is down then he'll nail you be very careful guys it's just important to understand that god doesn't love us because we're so good and lovable i kind of thought that for a while after i got saved well you know i am kind of cute i mean i i mean i know that god loves me because i'm such a kind of a sweet guy "Oh, really um no no i'm kidding but We can fall into that trap. We need to understand that God doesn't love us because we're so good and lovable. God loves us because that's his nature. In other words, he doesn't love us because of who we are. He loves us because of who he is. And if the devil can invert that in your mind, you're going to always try and be working to earn God's love and favor. If it's all on me, Um, what I do to please God and to give me favor, then I'm always going to be trying to work to earn God's love and favor. If I realize that God loves me unconditionally because of who He is, and that even though I don't deserve the smallest blessing from God, if I face every day with the attitude, Lord, I don't deserve to be blessed today, but this is who you are. You want to bless me today. I don't deserve it. Have at it. Who might argue with you, Lord? But, But think about that mindset. I'm not trying to earn anything now. I'm just receiving what God wants to give me by grace. One author said, the doctrine of total depravity. Now, hear me out. I think this gentleman was a Calvinist. I believe in the depravity of man. I don't believe in how uh, in total depravity the way some pastors define it. A lot of the Calvinists, maybe all of them, um, believe total depravity means that man is so depraved and full of sin he can't even exercise his will to choose God. And, and they'll point to Romans three, none seek after God. We'll talk about that, okay? But there are those who believe that. Mankind is so totally depraved, they can't even begin to want to accept Christ. Now, I believe mankind is totally depraved, but not so much so that God has allowed our depravity to remove our ability to receive Jesus as our king. We still have a free will. But he said that the doctrine of total depravity doesn't hinder God's love. It magnifies it. It puts the focus on God who could love such vile sinners like us and takes the focus off of man trying to earn God's love. Until we really see ourselves properly, we'll never really love and appreciate God properly. As long as we feel we're not so bad and have done a lot of good things, which makes us worthy of God's love, we won't really appreciate God's love or His grace, end quote. Guys, until you can say like John Newton and mean it with all your heart, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Until you can say that and really mean it with all your heart, you're never going to be able to sing God's praises and you're never going to have a proper relationship with him. Because as long as you think there's a part of you that is worthy of God's love, your relationship with him will not be all that he wants it to be. But guys... The the problem with the Rabbi Kushners of the world who think they're being mistreated by God and getting a bum deal is that they think way too highly of themselves. Let me read to you a quote and then ask yourself if you agree with it or not. All right, Here's the quote. If it is a virtue to love my neighbor as a human being, it must be a virtue and not a vice to love myself since I am a human being too. There is no concept of man in which I myself am not included. A doctrine which proclaims such an exclusion proves itself to be intrinsically contradictory. That others deserve love, but I don't. I am to love others, but I'm not to love myself. That's contradictory. That's, uh, that's a problem, he says. The idea expressed in the biblical love thy neighbor as thyself implies that that respect for one's own integrity and uniqueness, love for and understanding of one's own self cannot be separated from respect for and love and understanding of another individual. The love for my own self is inseparably connected with the love for any other self. End quote. That statement sounds like something you've heard maybe a dozen times on christian radio and television or maybe maybe something you read in a christian magazine or book it comes right out of matthew 22 verse 39 where jesus commanded his followers you shall love your neighbor as yourself the author who wrote the quote i just read to you interpreted jesus words to mean we can't love our neighbor until we first learn to love ourselves however guys that statement wasn't written by a christian In fact, that interpretation of Matthew 22, verse 39, didn't start with a person who loved God and was a spirit-filled believer in Jesus Christ. No, it came from an atheist and from a psychoanalyst named Eric Fromm back in the 1940s. Fromm tried to justify his humanistic view of self-love as biblical. I think he was trying to expand his practice to Christians. So he wanted, you know, he wanted to... uh, take his own uh, humanistic view of self-love and make it kind of biblical. So Christians would buy into it so he could get him his patience. But Fromm tried to justify his humanistic view of self-love as biblical by saying that even Jesus taught that we can't really love anyone else until we first learn to love ourselves. Therefore, he said, self-love is the greatest love of all. You thought Whitney Houston came up with that. That was Eric Fromm. I don't know if she listened to him, but uh, yeah, he came up with that. But guys, self-love is the greatest love of all. Jesus said it. No, that's not what Jesus said at all. He didn't say, learn to love yourself before you can love others. He said, love others as you already love yourself. The devil has infiltrated the church in these last days. The devil has infiltrated the church with this kind of thinking and corrupted it into embracing the demonic philosophy of self-love, which in turn has led to the rise of the self-esteem movement that has captured the thinking and teaching of so many Christian leaders. One well-known Christian motivational speaker echoes what many authors and speakers in the Christian community are telling people. Here's what he said. He wrote this in a book. To build your self-image, make a list of your positive qualities on a card and keep it close at hand, As a reference. Brag on yourself from time to time. Come on, get in your own corner. You should also set aside a few minutes each day for the sole purpose of deliberately looking yourself in the eye, of course, in a mirror. As you do this, repeat some positive affirmations of things you have done. Use your victory list from step 10. I didn't read the book. I'm just, it's here, okay? So, you know, periodically throughout the day, stand in front of the mirror and say, you're wonderful you are you are crushing it you're just everything you you're just wonderful guy a wonderful girl then repeat many of the things other people have said to you or about you that were positive there are also cases where plastic surgery can be quite helpful in building a positive self-image this is especially this is no Christian book it's especially true in cases of an unusually large uh, or long nose, protruding ears, grossly oversized or undersized breasts, etc. Yeah, I, I read some of this stuff and I'm like, what has happened to the church? Another Christian counselor and psychologist counsels his patients. He said, and I quote, perhaps the most important key to the permanent enhancement of self esteem is the practice of what he calls positive self talk. We used to call it bragging, but they've changed everything. Every waking moment, we must feed our self-image positive thoughts about ourselves and our performances so relentlessly and vividly that our self-images are in time molded and modified to conform to new, higher standards, end quote. Well, it uh, just so happens that Jesus talked about a man who had positive self-talk down to a science. You might want to turn there, Luke 18. You all know the story. Luke 18, starting with verse 10. Jesus told us, he said, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you. That I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. That's positive self-talk, folks, at its finest. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other, listen, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Guys, the whole teaching on self-esteem, and I just wanted to take a little time tonight as we're moving into this last main part of this first main section, where Paul is dealing with self-love, man's perception and view of himself as opposed to what God sees man as. Okay? Okay. But the whole teaching on self-esteem goes against everything the New Testament tells us to do with self. The word esteem means to regard highly, to value greatly, to have a high opinion of. Therefore, self-esteem would then be to regard self highly and to value self greatly, to have a high opinion of yourself. Self-esteem used to be called pride. used to be called pride. And stands exactly opposite to what the Bible says we as Christians are to do with self. Deny yourself. Crucify self. Don't have a high opinion of yourself. Remember what Paul said in Philippians 2, verse 3? Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than him or herself. You know, you're talking about People building up their self-esteem. And a lot of teachers, counselors, pastors feel this is the... And I had a bunch of quotes. I mean, I could have pulled them out. I did. There are very well-known Christian psychi- psychologists. One one you know very well. I think he's a good guy. I just think he's wrong on this issue, and so I'm not going to give you his name. He said, I can't think of one thing, crime or injustice or Anything negative at all that isn't linked to a low self esteem. Sin, violence, robberies, murder, all linked to low self esteem. Hold on to that because I think we're going to try to flip that to you see it in a different light. All right? But self esteem used to be called pride. And uh, anyone that is buying into the teaching that I need to build up my self esteem. Well, that involves working on having a greater view of yourself and learning to love yourself more and more. Because that's what they teach. The more you love yourself, the more you're going to love others. Um, I don't know where they get that in the Bible. Self-love, rather than being a virtue, is prophesied in the New Testament as being one of the sinful qualities that will characterize the last days. I'll read it to you. 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 and 2. But know this... Paul said that in the last days, we're here, perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, boasters, proud. And he goes on. Guys, self-love doesn't facilitate our love for others. It hinders it. The problem is we already love ourselves so much that we often, and then you try to add onto it more self-love. There's nothing left for anybody else. And that's the problem in our culture. We have all these people running around loving themselves, trying to love themselves more, blah, blah, blah. You say, well, wait a minute now. There's a lot of people in society that hate themselves. That's not true. That's a lie. Ephesians 5.29, For no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes it and cherishes it. Look, even the teenager who looks in the mirror and sees her face covered with acne and cries, You're ugly, I hate you. Doesn't really hate herself. Why do you know that? When was the last time you were upset because someone you hated was ugly? Think about it. If you really hated yourself, you'd be glad you were ugly. Which is why you're so upset with the way you look. It's because you do love yourself. Everybody does. No one ever hated themselves, Paul said. Actually, we touched on this last week, but actually studies indicate That even criminals have very high, not low self-esteem. Have you ever asked yourself, why thieves steal? Well, that's easy. Obviously, they want what I have. And why do they want what you have? Because they're greedy? Yeah, but at the core, their actions are motivated by self-love. So they take what belongs to you because they believe that they are more deserving of possessing it than you are why why are they more deserving because they love themselves more than anyone else and that's why they have no guilt when they steal and generally feel completely justified in doing so it's because in their mind now they're really not taking what belongs to you they're taking back what rightly belongs to them the material things you quote-unquote stole from them through racism, injustice, white supremacy, whatever the they got going on. This teaching that we we all must learn to love ourselves and esteem ourselves as Christians. Listen to me now. Don't miss this. This teaching that we that we all must learn to love ourselves as Christians and esteem ourselves, constantly working on our self-image, telling ourselves how great and wonderful we are. God forbid we do a little honest self-examination. My fragile little ego couldn't handle that. But all this self-esteem teaching, this building up of self, is perverting our concept of the cross of Christ and why Jesus died for us, as well as destroying our love for and gratitude toward God for what he has done for us, Turn to Luke 7. Luke 7. I want to read verses 36 to 47. And I want you to really read this story. You've read it many times before, no doubt. But I want you to really read it now like you're reading it for the first time within the context of self-love. Okay? Then one of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner... When she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil, and stood at his feet behind him weeping, and she began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisee, who had invited him, saw this, he spoke to himself in his heart, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, Teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, Well, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, You have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water from my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You do not anoint my head with oil, but this woman is anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. What is this telling us? Well, it's implying that the more conscious we are of our own unworthiness, the more we will love him for his grace and forgiveness, the grace and forgiveness he has so freely bestowed upon such unworthy sinners such as we. Do you see it there? A Pharisee and a notorious sinner. He felt he was completely justified in inviting the prophet over. And he was sitting there right next to Jesus. She was not even worthy to come up to his level, but she fell on her face to the ground washed his feet with her tears, dried them with her hair, and so on. And Jesus said, because she's a sinner and she knows she's a sinner, she loved much. And I'm assuming that means that she had received Christ. And this was an act of gratitude. The Pharisee he had no gratitude. He, he felt worthy to be in Jesus' presence. Guys, don't miss us and we'll close. Our love and, and appreciation for God is directly proportionate to how little or how much we love ourselves. Mark it down. Why don't I love God more? Possibly because you love yourself too much. The people that I have met over the years who are absolutely in love, crazy in love with Jesus, are people that were notorious sinners at one point. And they knew God rescued them out of their own sin and depravity they they deserve nothing from god but every day they thank him for his grace and for how much he loves them let me say it again our love and appreciation for god is directly proportionate to how little or how much we love ourselves you know paul's self-image quote-unquote seems to have deteriorated the the closer he got to Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 15, 9, Paul describes himself as the least of the apostles. Later in his life, he says that in Ephesians 3, 8, that he, at that point now, was the least of all the saints. Early on, after getting saved, I'm the least of the apostles. A few years goes by, I'm the least of all the saints. Near the end of his life, First Timothy 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul's assessment of himself was, I'm the chief of sinners. Look, Paul understood the key to his relationship with God was an increasing love for Christ and an increasing disregard for himself. Isn't it the stroke of the devil who has flipped it over? He's no fool. He knows the more we love ourselves, the The less we're going to love God, he's pumping into the church all this self-love mantra baloney garbage, demonic attack on the church. Look, don't fall into the habit of saying, okay, pastor, well, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to just start putting myself down all the time because I'm an unworthy sinner. Don't do that either. That's false humility. Just look at yourself honestly every day and thank God for his grace, for saving us, You know, and for preparing a place for us that Jesus is coming to bring us to someday. Someday soon. Someday soon. So we'll stop there, and uh, why don't we pray, and we'll pick it up, God willing, next time. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your great love wherewith you love sinners such as we. Forgive us, Lord, if we ever thought, or we still think. We are deserving of the least of your mercies, Lord. Forgive us. Crush that pride right out from within us. And Lord, make us like this woman who fell on her face after you forgave her and poured her heart out to you in love. She was an unworthy sinner, and yet she was overwhelmed by your love and grace and mercy toward her. Father, give us grace to see ourselves as you see us, vile sinners who are now saved by grace but still have a fallen nature that is prone to sin all the time. Give us grace, Lord, that we walk closer and closer to you every single day, that we at one point can come to a place and say it with all our heart that amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I can't believe what God has done. I can't believe how good he's been to me. I don't deserve anything, but he's given me everything that matters. Thank you, Lord. Father, we ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.